Hey, I'm Zach. Thanks so much for checking out this week's message. I hope that it encourages you. I hope it challenges you. And I hope that it causes you to dive deeper into God's Word. I also hope that you have some community around you that you can talk through some of these things with. And if you don't, we'd love to invite you to be a part of our community here at Restore, whether that's coming to one of our Sunday gatherings or coming to one of our Restore groups. Either way, we would love to see you. You can get more information about that on our website at RestoreAustin.org. And I hope you enjoyed this week's video. Election season is in full swing, right? Everywhere that you go, you see the little yard signs. You see the kind of big signs, too. And actually, Amy and I were talking the other day, my wife, about how they're all red and blue. I would get like a neon pink one, you know, if I was running for something and really stand out if that was me. There's a Randall's right next to my house. And if you didn't know, Randall's is one of the places where you can vote. And so I love driving by it every morning because I'm pretty sure that in the middle of the night, constituents or, or supporters of different people come and they remove signs of the people that they're running against and put signs for the people that they're uh, pro, like closer to the street, because it's different every day. Like there are six of them right there next to the street. It's all one person the next day. Those will all be kind of back in another area. You know, some are half fallen over and there's a new person like right there. So I love doing that. Now, I know that I'm not supposed to do this, Right? As, as a leader of a faith-based nonprofit, it's illegal for me to endorse anyone for office, but I'm going to do it anyway. I am going to throw all of my support behind Jed Bartlett. There he is. That's a West Ring, Ring reference, if you didn't know that. Um, some of you got nervous there for a second, but if you know me at all, you know that I would never actually endorse anyone for political office. And please don't read anything about my personal politics into my pseudo-endorsement of Jed Bartlett. It's just a joke, because I really like the West Wing. Um, as the great Billy Graham, who passed away a couple of weeks ago, said, you have to stand in the middle in order to preach to all people, both on the right and on the left. One of my professors in seminary, who's also a pastor, put it like this. My task as one of your pastors is to point you to Jesus, to his gospel, and to his ethic of compassion, love, and justice. And that's far too important a task for me to ever compromise by telling you how to vote. That's why when people ask me how I vote or ask me how to vote, I don't tell them. But all that being said, I still really love the West Wing. Like really, really love the West Wing. And I love President Bartlett. And I think that the reason I'm so drawn to him is because of how deeply he cares about people. You see this in the way that he treats his kids, the way that he loves his wife, the way that he works arm in arm with his staff. Over his two terms in office, his staff team, the people that are closest to him, like really become a family. And I think so much of that is because from day one, from jump, they just have each other's back all the time. They're always there for each other no matter what. Like when they find out that Leo McGarry, the chief of staff, is a recovering alcoholic. They rally support around him. They stand by him, even when it costs them politically. 
when C.J. Craig, the press secretary, has a catastrophically bad press briefing. They go to her and they, they bring her into the Oval Office and they rally around her and they say, we're here, we're behind you. She actually tries to turn in her resignation and they say, no, we're a family, we're here, we're a team. Through family problems, through work issues, even through spiritual dilemmas, they are simply there for each other, no matter what, no matter what it costs them. Now, this is a little bit of a spoiler, but the show came out in 1999, so it's your fault if you have not seen it by now. At the end of the first season, President Bartlett and his staff are leaving this town hall meeting, and they're about to get in their cars, and as they do, someone starts shooting at them, and you don't know who it is. We found out later that President Bartlett has been shot, and his deputy chief of staff, Josh Lyman, has also been shot. President Bartlett's able to get over it pretty quickly, but Josh actually stays in the hospital for a while, and there's a while that you don't know if he's going to make it. But he finally pulls through, through, and in kind of typical Josh fashion, he rushes through his rehab so that he can get back to work. But after coming back, Josh starts having these flashbacks. He kind of starts dealing with PTSD. And the staff family, the people that love him, that are around him, try to tell Josh to get help but he won't listen. He keeps telling everyone that he's fine. He keeps dodging the support that they try to give, but his staff family loves him too much to just let him sink deeper and deeper. So his boss, Leo, calls in one of the world's best psychiatrists to help and makes Josh go see him. The first time he sees him, it's Christmas Eve, and he's had this all-day session with the psychiatrist, and during this session, Josh realizes that he does actually need some help. And he begins finally accepting it. And as he walks out of the session, headed home, he runs into Leo, who all day on Christmas Eve has been patiently waiting for Josh to get out. Here's the clip. I want to show it to you. How'd it go? Did you wait around for me? How'd it go? He thinks I may have an eating disorder. Josh. And uh, fear of rectangles. That's not weird, is it? I didn't cut my hand on a glass. I broke a window in my apartment. This guy's walking down the street when he falls in the hall. The walls are so steep he can't get out. A doctor passes by and the guy shouts up, Hey, you, can you help me out? The doctor writes a prescription, throws it down in the hole, and moves on. Then a priest comes along, and the guy shouts up, Father, I'm down in this hole, can you help me out? The priest writes out a prayer, throws it down in the hole, and moves on. Then a friend walks by. Hey, Joe, it's me, can you help me out? And the friend jumps in the hole. Our guy says, are you stupid? Now we're both down here. The friend says, yeah, but I've been down here before, and I know the way out. Long as I got a job, you got a job, you understand? The first time I ever watched that scene, I just started crying. And uh, I can see by looking out that I'm not the only one that that happened to. I think that this story touches so many of us, that story that Leo tells Josh, because we've all been there, you know? In life, we're either going into a hole, 
coming out of a hole or in a hole right now. For those of us who have been in some really deep holes, which is most of us in this room, we know just how dark it can get down there, how hard it can be and how lonely it is. Let me just say this, because I think it's really important. A doctor with a prescription and a pastor with a Bible verse, they can be absolutely vital when we're in a hole. They can be so important. They can be so helpful. But without deep, meaningful relationships with Jesus and others, they just aren't enough. They just aren't enough. Because for those of us who have had a loved one join us down in the hole, for those of us who have had someone jump in and say, but I've been here before and I know the way out, we know just how life-changing it can be. True connection means getting down in the hole with someone else. So how do we do it? How do we make sure that our loved ones aren't down in holes all by themselves? And how do we make sure that when we fall down in one, we have the courage to ask someone to come in with us? Well, over the last four weeks, we've been in this series called Connecting. In the first week, we looked at this epidemic of loneliness that so many of us experience that most of us experience at one time in our life, this feeling of isolation, feeling of not being truly connected with Jesus and others. The second week, we talked about the importance of seeing ourselves the way God sees us, of understanding who we are in Christ, that we can't have real deep connections with others if we don't know who we are in Jesus. And then last week, Mark talked about seeing others the way God sees them. So it's not only important to know our identity in Christ and who we are. It's important to see others the way God sees them. Did you know that we like to put people in categories, right? Like, you know, they're this or they're that or they're this color or they're this political affiliation or they're this gender. A lot of times we put them in categories of worth too. Like, this person is worth a little bit of my time. This person is worth... Maybe a lunch, this person's worth a coffee, this person, I love them, maybe they can come hang out at my house. And, and we put people into all these categories all the time. This person's a handshake, this person's a high five, this person's a hug and a conversation. We put people into categories, but Jesus just had one category worth dying for. That was the category that he put every single one of us in. We were worth dying for, for him. And so it's important to understand not only who we are in Christ, but to understand how Jesus sees everyone else as worthy of his very life. And so with that foundation, as we've understood the problem of loneliness, as we've understood who we are in Christ and how Jesus sees others, now we're ready to finish up this series today by diving deeply into what Christ-centered connection really looks like and how to get there. So turn or scroll with me to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, starting in verse 19. So if you have your Bible or your phone, Hebrews chapter 10, starting in verse 19. The verses will also be on the screen behind me if you don't have it. We're going to dive deeply into verses 19 through 25 today. But I want someone to tell me what the very first word of verse 19 is. Shout it out. What's the very first word of verse 19 if you have it? Therefore. Just like Mark said last week, when we see the word therefore, we have to ask, what is it there for? Therefore is a transitional word. It's an applicative word. It's the bridge between a truth that has just been presented 
and what we are supposed to now do with that truth. What is it there for? So before we dive into the application of the truth in verses 19 through 25, we have to understand what the truth itself is. Starting back in verse 1 of chapter 10. Look at it with me. We're just going to roll through this. The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly, year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. Otherwise, would they not have stopped being offered? Now let me pause here for a second. What they're talking about here is this Old Testament sacrificial system. You see, if you were a person of faith, or a Jewish person, a person, a part of the family of God in the Old Testament, every year you would bring a sacrifice to the temple and you'd give it to the priests and they would sacrifice it on you and your family's behalf. And all of your past year's sins would be cleansed. That was this sacrificial system. But that law, that sacrificial system was only a shadow of the good things to come. He said, we, we wash your sin away for an entire year, but I know someone who's going to wash your sin away for all eternity. Back in it. For the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins, but those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings you were not pleased. And I said, Here I am. It is written about me in the scroll, and I have come to do your will, my God. First he said, Sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them though they were offered in accordance with the law. Then he said, here I am, I have come to do your will. He sets aside the first to establish the second. Okay, if you're tracking with me here, Jesus came and he said, all the, all the bulls, all the goats, all the sacrifices, they weren't good enough. So here I am, I'm gonna be the ultimate sacrifice. He sets aside the first, which wasn't bad. It just was never gonna be good enough. And he came and he stepped in and he said, I'm the ultimate. I am the everlasting. I am the eternal sacrifice once for all. And it was better. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties again and again. He offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest, that's Jesus, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. He came and he saw, God looked down and he saw the brokenness that existed in the world. The brokenness of the existing sacrificial system that was a burden on the people. He said, I love them too much to leave them like that. I'm going to send Jesus. I'm going to send myself, my son, to come and to be a once-for-all sacrifice. So Jesus came down. He said, here I am. And he laid his life down. And I love that last phrase. Jesus has made perfect those who are being made holy. And that's kind of an interesting thing, right? Because it sounds like that those two don't go together. He has made perfect those who are being made holy. 
Well, two weeks ago in this series, we talked about something called our spiritual anatomy, how we've been made by God and what happens when we place our faith in Jesus. And I showed you this picture. This idea of scripture teaches that everyone has these three parts of them, a body, which is where we express life. It's where we experience the sight, sound, smell, taste, touch. It's our bodies, right? That's the outside circle. Then the middle circle, we have our soul. It's made up of our mind, will, and emotions. It's where we think. It's where we decide. It's where we emote. It's where we experience life. And then that inner circle, the spirit, is where life resides. It's our innermost being. The moment that we place our faith in Jesus, his spirit, the Holy Spirit comes and dwells us. And in our innermost being, we are made new and completely perfect. That white circle there. That's what it means when it says Jesus made perfect those who are being made holy. And it's from there, from the inside out, as you see the arrows going out, that we experience this holiness transformation. We are made perfect and we are being made holy. And it's from the perfection, from the Holy Spirit that indwells us that we trust moment by moment, day by day to lead us on these paths of righteousness, to lead us into more holy living, to lead us into more Christ-like behavior. It's not from the outside in. It's not by reading a bunch of books. It's not by following a whole bunch of rules. It's not by trying to fix ourselves all the time and doing it in our own power. No, it's about trusting the Holy Spirit of God that's inside of us. And transformation takes place from the perfect making us holy. It's really, really a beautiful process. So with that understanding of the truth of what Jesus has done and who we now are in him, the author of Hebrews transitions to the application of that truth by saying, therefore. Therefore, verse 19, therefore, brothers and sisters, Okay, I promise that we'll stop going one word at a time after this or we'll never get through all of it. But this is too important to miss. You may know that the New Testament was originally written in Greek. Well, the Greek word for brothers and sisters is adelphoi. And adelphoi means brethren or sibling. It's the term most often used to refer to Christians in the New Testament. Why? Because it's the truest understanding of what it means to be a part of the family of God. Brothers and sisters in Christ, you may have heard it put that way. It's important to understand that the application of this truth that we just studied, right? Therefore, we're transitioning to the application of the truth. The application of this truth that the author is about to enter into is not singular. It's not a singular application. It doesn't say, therefore, child. It doesn't say, therefore, Christian. It says, therefore, brothers and sisters. It's vital for us to understand that before Jesus calls us into anything else, he calls us into connection with each other, with himself and with our brothers and sisters. When the religious leaders asked Jesus what the greatest commandment was, he said, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. Before Jesus calls us into anything else, before we can apply any truth that he gives us, he first calls us into deep meaningful connection, relationship with himself and with our neighbor. That comes first. So the author is making absolutely clear from the start that everything they're about to say has what I'm calling a communal application. 
It's not a singular application, it's a communal application. He's not calling one of us, he's calling all of us. He's not calling us to step into these things alone, he's calling us to step into them arm in arm with our brothers and sisters. Okay, back to verse 19. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain that is his body, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. In our biblical text this morning, you'll notice three let us statements. Three let us statements. These are the communal applications that I mentioned earlier. Notice again that it's plural. The author doesn't say let you or let me. He says let us. So these three let us statements are really directions from God to his people, encouragements, exhortations from God to us. When the family of God puts these things into practice, deep, meaningful, Christ-centered connection occurs. This is what they're there for. We just read the first one. Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with full assurance that faith brings. In short, let us have faith. That's number one. Let us have faith. For some reason, many of us have been taught that faith is an individual virtue, something that is deeply personal, that we're to continually pursue in isolation. Your faith, your personal relationship with Jesus, terms like that, they're not bad. They're just not complete. Faith to the, the person in the first century reading this letter, they would have never thought as faith of an, as an individual exercise. They spent time together. They read scripture together. A lot of them couldn't even read, so they had to have scripture read to them. A lot of the scripture wasn't even written down at this point, so it was verbally passed down from person to person. They did it together. So how do we have faith together today? Well, it's just by talking about Jesus with each other by being real and open about how we feel, what we're going through, what we believe. You've probably seen our welcome video either this morning or every Sunday morning that we show it. One part of it, it says, this is a safe place where you can ask questions, doubt, and be open about what you're going through. And we really mean that. That's what having faith together looks like. Matt and I put this into practice all the time at the office. It's really funny. There's probably not a week that goes by that one of us wouldn't walk in and say, like, I just don't understand this. I just don't know how this works. I, I just don't get this Bible verse or this passage. I don't understand how it works together. I don't understand how it works in my life. I don't understand what it means. And we'll work through that faith together. We'll open the Bible together. We'll talk through things together. We'll do research together. And there's not judgment. When I come to Matt, he's like, you're the pastor. You should know that, right? Like, he doesn't do that. We have faith together. We're a family. We're brothers and sisters. This is how we approach every conversation here at Restore. We're not trying to make you fit into some stereotype of what we or you think a Christian is supposed to look like. We actually listen to each other, have real conversations with each other. We have faith together. That's the first one. Let us have faith. Here's the next one. Let us, verse 23, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he 
who promised is faithful. In short, let us hope. Let us have faith is the first one. Let us hope is the second one. I love that the author includes the why behind we can hope. He says, because he who promised is faithful. To put it another way, he's saying, let us hope because Jesus never lets us down. Let us hope together because God always comes through. How do we hope together? We tell stories of the faithfulness of God. We encourage everyone in our restore groups to spend time at least once sharing their stories with each other, to go just around the circle and talk about what God has done in your life. And in our group, we carved out one whole evening for each person to share their story. And it was incredible. It was incredible. After each person shared, it was so beautiful to hear story after story of how God has just been faithful in their lives, about how he's done amazing things. And after they finished, we would stop and we would pray for them. We'd all go around and we would just thank God for their story. We would thank God for what he's done and we would thank God for his faithfulness in their lives. Hearing those stories, those were some of the most hope-filled nights of my life because I just got to hear over and over and over again about the faithfulness of God and what he's done. I got to be reminded of his faithfulness in my own life what he's done for me. Let us have faith. Let us hope. And the last one is found in verse 24. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. In short, let us love. Let us have faith. Let us hope. And let us love. Faith, hope, and love. That may sound familiar because it's found in one of the most popular passages in the entire Bible, 1 Corinthians 13, 13. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Love is the foundation upon which everything else is built. Without love, nothing else matters. You may think that I'm overstating it or I'm oversimplifying it, but I want you to listen to what Paul said just a few sentences before in 1 Corinthians 13. If I could speak all the languages of earth and of angels but didn't love others, I would be only a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I had the gift of prophecy and if I understood all of God's secret plans and possessed all knowledge and if I had such faith that I could move mountains but I didn't love others, I would be nothing. If I gave everything I have to the poor and even sacrificed my body, I could boast about it. But if I didn't love others, I would have gained nothing. Without love, as the, as the undergirding, as the foundation for all things, nothing else really matters. Let us have faith together. Let us hope together. And most of all, let us love together. Let us jump down in that hole with each other. Let us have deep meaningful, Christ-centered connection with each other. Because I'm telling you from experience that if we really do this, if we really do this, it changes everything. 
These aren't just words on paper. They, they actually work. Guys, when we have faith and hope and love together, it truly enables these Christ-centered connections that we're all longing for. These things that change people's lives, even their eternities forever. I want to close by telling you a story of my friend Brant. I was going to use a made-up name, but I called him this week and asked him if it was okay if I shared his story. And uh, I was like, of course, I won't, won't use your name. And he was like, of course you can share it. You can even use my name if you want to. That's awesome. And he said, hopefully it will help someone else who is going through the same thing I was. So I'm going to share Brant's story with you. Brant hadn't lived in Austin all that long when he started feeling kind of isolated. He didn't know many people here, and he started feeling anxious about what was next for him. You know, what was, what was coming next, not only here, but kind of eternally. And even though he had spent some time in church as a young kid, it had been years since he'd been back. And I think if he was being honest, he would have told you he didn't really like church that much. He'd had some weird and bad experiences with it, and he'd never really found that much value in it. But one Saturday night, as he was feeling especially anxious and isolated, even more so than usual, he decided to Google churches. And he found one. It's called Restore. And he came here on a Sunday. And his first Sunday here, I met him when he walked in and just, hey, I'm Zach. Great to meet you. I'm Brant. I'm so glad you're here, man. But after church was over, we had a couple of people invite him out to lunch. And they went to lunch, and they hung out together, and they spent time together. And then at lunch, they invited him to one of their restore groups. And he went. And he hung out at the restore group, spent time, got to know people. Later on, he got invited to a Super Bowl party. Went to a Super Bowl party, met more people. A couple of weeks go by, and I sit down to have coffee with Brant. We're at Joe's just up the street, and we're talking about Jesus. And at this point, he's still got lots of questions but he shared with me that he had been overwhelmed by the love he had received from the people here at Restore. People who didn't even know him, invited him into their homes, invited him into their lives. As we worked through his questions and we kind of talked about what was next, he said, I just need a couple of days to think a little bit more about it. But the very next day he texted me and he said, I'm ready to go all in with Jesus. I'm ready to go all in with Jesus. He was shown faith and hope and love by our beautiful church family, by you guys, by so many of you guys. And even in a short time, he made Christ-centered connections with people, and that is what God used to open up his heart to Jesus. Because he said, if this God is anything like his people, that's someone that I want to know. And tragically, it is so often the opposite that happens. That we meet Christians, that we meet people of faith, and we walk into churches, and people say, if their God is anything like those people, I don't want to have anything to do with them. But I am so proud of, of this church and of this family because that is not who we are. We are a place that when people walk in, they say, I want to know the God behind those people. I want to know the God they sing about. I want to be in relationship with the Jesus that they can't stop talking about because they love people so well. I feel like a proud papa up here, you know? <laughs> 
That's how it's supposed to be. This is why we exist. This is why Restore exists. We are unapologetically about making Christ-centered connections with each other. Listen to how the author concludes these three let us statements, directions from God. He really wants us to make sure we know we're supposed to be doing these things together. Verse 25, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day approaching. Listen, I'm just going to be real with you. You can't have Christ-centered connection if you give up meeting with each other. You can't do it. You can't have Christ-centered connections with people if you're not with people. If you're here and you haven't jumped in to relationships, to connections like that, let's make today the day that happens. I'm going to pray and I'm going to give you an opportunity to do just that. Lord God, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for who you are. Thank you for what you're doing. Thank you for our church family. Thank you for all these beautiful sisters and brothers in Christ who just care deeply for you and for one another and for every single person that you have here on this earth. God, we are so lucky to be loved by you. We are so lucky to be loved by each other as well. Thank you for this morning. Thank you for connection. I pray that if there is anyone here in this room that is not in relation, that's that's still feeling somewhat isolated, somewhat lonely, that this morning would be the last morning that they feel that because they would step into these Christ-centered connections with you, Jesus, and with others. It's in your name we pray. Amen.